Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Salem's Lot, Part 1, Chapters 1 through 3. Let's start the show! Novelist Ben Mears returns to Salem's Lot, a town where he grew up when he was a child. He's returning after a recent tragedy in his life. In Salem's Lot, he meets a young woman, Susie Norton, and they hit it off, sharing recollections about the town, which turn increasingly darker as Ben tells a story about the Martson House, an edifice that has many stories related to it and was recently purchased. King then provides us with a section on the day in the life of Salem's Lot, in which we read about the many residents and their secrets. It ends with the abduction and sacrifice of young Ralphie Glick. Poor Ralphie. All right, Jay, this is the first section proper of the book after the prologue, and we really are getting into it. And we're immediately given a lot of tropes. There's a haunted house in town. There's the local boy who makes good and comes back home. Mm -hmm. He's suffering a tragedy. It looks like maybe his wife or fiance was in a motorcycle accident. And then he's an orphan because he had dead parents. And then he lives with a aunt, but she dies too. It's just like trope, 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 trope. But King puts his own unique spin on all of this. And it's really sort of fascinating to read. Absolutely. Would you like to elaborate on that, Jay? <laughs> no, I just agree. Let's move on. <laughs> so this is the first real instance of King with a writer for a protagonist. We've joked about it many times how King relies on writers as protagonists and they're the sort of stand-in for King. But this is only a second novel. The first one was Carrie. Mm -hmm. Neither Carrie nor... Carrie's mother were were writers, so here we've got Ben Mir sort of serving as that that fill-in, and it's new here. So even though we've joked about it, and, and it seems like a a, king, a common king trope, this is where it originates. Yeah, that's definitely a king trope. But the other tropes you talked about, like the local boy makes good, and the character with a haunted past. I mean, those are definitely not things that King pioneered, even all the way back when he wrote this book. Yes, uh, they work for a reason, right? Yes. It helps us understand this character and even some aspects of the town more easily. Yeah. By traveling this somewhat familiar ground. And then we get that sort of tour de force chapter three, which is the day in the life of Salem's Lot. Yeah. And that is even sort of of itself a trope, right? Like, let's look at the underside of this of this town and see what it's like. And we'll check in with different characters. and. It's very melodramatic. Mm. It's got that soap opera feel, which, you know, he talked about it being like Peyton Place or I get a sense of Winesburg, Ohio, where you get this sort of small town and you don't really know about all these these characters. But uh, again, a, a similar trope, but they all work together and King puts his unique twist on it and obviously throwing vampires in the mix helps a lot. Yeah. Even though we don't really know that they're vampires yet. But you could easily picture like the the soundtrack to Twin Peaks playing in the background as you're meeting each of these characters. Right. Yeah, that'd be good.
so a lot of this section really focuses on sort of small town living and, and what life is like in the lot. This is not sort of what we're used to. Like a, there's this myth in America that these small towns in America are where the real America is and where real life is like, and that things are are good there, and it's the cities that are that are the places that are where the evil resides and bad thing happens. But even in the little bit that we get in this first section, we get a lot of this is not a perfect place by any means. When King is describing Salem's lot, he talks about how there's nice sections of town, but then there's the the place where the poor people live and the trailers, and there's this person who's a drunk and there's abuse going on. So it's not really this sort of perfect small town that you would think about. Yeah, and I think King has talked about this in the foreword to this book and in other places where he's addressed us directly that he's always been kind of fascinated by the small towns in America, the nature of those small towns, and how they are very rarely the shining example of the Norman Rockwell painting that mm. we kind of hope that they would be or that we aspire you know, to be as people who live in towns and things like that. And King takes this to the next level. Like, this isn't just your typical small town that maybe isn't as shiny and perfect as one would hope it, it is. This town actually has some serious things going on here. They're just under the surface. This town is a ready receptacle for evil. Mm. I think King's point that he's trying to establish here is that small towns are often more sinister than anyone cares to admit. Yes. He paints us this picture of like, yeah, if you were just on the road and you drove through Salem's Lot, you'd think, okay, yeah, small town. It has, like you said, good parts of town, bad parts of town. It has shops and stores and restaurants. And then you just keep on driving through. But Salem's Lot in particular, it's got something about it. It's like the from the Marston house down to who's, you know, doing what bad stuff that the other town's folk kind of sort of know about and just accept right why wouldn't some i don't know more powerful version of that evil show up and make itself at home and when you think about how when we talked about jerusalem's lot recently that was part of that right like the town was corrupted by things that happened there and you wonder if some of that nature is what's spilling over and continuing like this is a bad place Mm -hmm. and that's what brings whatever is coming from wherever to to buy the Martson house, which is something that Ben wanted. It's interesting that Ben also wanted to buy the house. Like he comes back and this is a place of some great shame for him and where he had a very super scary supernatural moment and he wants to go back to that place and buy it and it still haunts him. He makes sure he has an apartment where he can see it, like to keep his eye on it. Mm-hmm. Like there's something about this that's drawing people to it and whether it's that evil, which wouldn't be odd. I mean King's next book, or one of his next books, is The Stand, and the whole idea of like there's supernatural things drawing people to places, whether that be Colorado or Las Vegas. Right. You get that sense that that's something that he plays around with. Another trope, perhaps. Yeah, and something I hadn't thought about is like, what did Ben want with the house? If he had been able to buy it, yeah, or just rent it, I think he just wanted to rent it. But if even if he had just rented it or buy it, did he? simply want to have free access to the inside of the house so that he could maybe confront his childhood experience and relive it in a way that he could somehow allow that wound to heal? Mm -hmm. Or 
was there more to it? Did he want to, I don't know, maybe burn the house down or something like <laughs> right. I own it. Now it's ashes, right? Like it doesn't exist anymore. I've rid the world of this evil place. Yeah. If he did have that intent, maybe he didn't realize it yet. I'm, I'm sure we'll find out more in the chapters to come because we are really introduced to just the fact that he had an experience here, which he tells Susie about, and that, you know, Susie and others in town have their own stories about what a creepy place it is. And mm-hmm. there's rumors, some of which are true, some of which aren't, that sort of abound about this this place. As we talked about how that small towns are more sinister, it's it's strange to think about how this book takes place in a time during our lifetime. Yeah. He, he wrote this in the mid-70s. You and I were both alive at that point. But again, a small town and people are on party lines. So like for those of you who are used to having a cell phone with you you're all the time, your entire life, like people had party lines where you would share an actual landline phone with your neighbors and you could pick it up and hear other conversations. And at the center of all this is um, a woman named Mabel Wirtz, who King describes as a benevolent spider sitting in the center of a communications web. And so you get the sense like hmm. anything in, in Salem's lot is a, is, is a piece of the web and it vibrates and it somehow gets through to, to Mabel and she can send out more communications from that. So a nice little visual there. I don't think it's super original. Like I've, I've seen that done elsewhere, but I love the idea, especially when we get to how, King has described the geography of the town, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. But like you get a sense, like you could do a spider web off of this as well. And Mabel, Mabel Wurtz is, is sort of sitting there. But it's again, that whole, even with a small town, everyone knows each other. And a lot of people know each other's secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, we get that piece when the two cops are talking and they see that Susie's hanging out with Ben and they're both like, oh, Susie's boyfriend's not going to like that. And everyone knows about it except for the boyfriend. Until he finds out, I'm assuming. Right. I, I kind of get the feeling that in a small town like this, where everybody does know everybody's business, if he doesn't know already, he's going to soon. He's going to know quick. So another thing we wanted to talk about was the writing style or structure of this book so far. We kind of get sort of an interesting take Uh, at the beginning, especially as King works his way to that third chapter where we get that a day in the life of the town. It's almost like somebody doing a a report. You know, at this hour, this happened. At At this next hour, this other thing happened. It's sort of detached hour by hour breakdown of the day, giving us the reader and the author is sort of giving us the pulse of the town. And we get to experience that this hour by hour breakdown, and we see we're seeing things happen that some of these things seem common or things that have happened many times, whether it's the couple having an affair or the guy who drinks too much or something like that. It's some of these things are like, yeah, everybody just accepts it. But there are other things that seem to be like maybe a little worse than normal. And it feels like not only are we getting the the hour by hour breakdown, but we're also getting rapid progression of the town as it sours. It's like by the time we get to the end of this day, we've gotten enough information about these new residents of the town and maybe some of the things that the that are happening in the town that like wow, this town just 
it was already a that ready receptacle for evil and it just took a deep dive by the end of that first day by the time we get to midnight it's it's full on like this town is bad yep and it's interesting that you say sours i didn't realize this till, till you started talking about it but one of the main characters we start off with is the milkman ah. the souring of milk is is a piece because the milkman is the one whose dog dies mm-hmm. he has his dog that is obviously sort of the love of his life after he loses his wife and the graveyard maintenance guy is the one who finds the dog seemingly thrown on a spike in front of the graveyard as if it was some cruel joke by some kids, although the maintenance guy's never really seen anything like that, especially since there doesn't seem to be that much blood and thinks it's weird. He's like, oh, it's going to really upset the milkman. And, mm-hmm. you know, then the milkman, it's interesting. The milkman's the one who knows a lot of the secrets. He can tell just by the writing on the notes. Like, oh, somebody's asking for extra sour cream. They must be making potatoes tonight. Maybe they're having a fancy meal. And it's, of course, mm-hmm. Susie having a date over. Yep. So all these pieces are, are intertwined. But um, yeah, when you said sour, and I realized that one of the main characters in this section was a milkman. Mm-hmm. Little, nice little twist there. Yeah. That sort of travel log or, or like a tick-tock of the story as we go from early in the morning as the people are milking and uh, I think it's two boys and one of them can't wait to get out of town because he hates it and he wants to leave school and then ending with a different two boys at the end who are being chased by some creature and one of them is just sort of disappears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get that that framing device as we go through that TikTok. But it's not only the that sort of very, as you said, detached travelogue style that's that I think is really brilliant and really introduces you to what's going on in Salem's Lot, but it's the whole way that King describes it. Like, I feel fairly confident that if you gave me a sheet of graph paper, I could graph out this town. Yeah. The main neighborhoods and the and the roads and where certain iconic areas of town are, uh, just based on King's description in a way that I can't with many other places. Like, Salem's Lot seems like a real place that I could put on the map fairly easily. Or like the beach in the Dark Tower. Which direction is north? I don't know. I had no idea. We talked about that for months. Yeah. But this one, I'm like, yes, I totally get the geography. I know where this is. I know where this is. I know where the river runs through. I know where the roads run through. It's just perfect. And I I get it. And it really adds to it because you get a sense of this place and why certain people live in certain places and how different buildings sort of where the marts and houses and how that impacts the look and feel of this. Yeah, there, there's so much language about like the crisscrossing power lines and the main roads. For example, there's a line that on a map, the two main roads gave the town an appearance very much like a telescopic site. Mm. And the CMP electricity pylons marched across town on a diagonal. And in my mind's eye, I almost can see this, all these crisscrossing lines that intersect at like the center of town make me think of, uh, like a target like if you view it this way jerusalem's lot is literally a target yeah then you start thinking like well, what is it a target for and i i think it's the evil that we talked about earlier right something happened to this town in the past and in jerusalem's lot the story there was some pretty heavy hitting evil that was there at one point in the past and maybe that just some of that still lingers somehow like it's like it's in the groundwater or something and 
Maybe that worm is still crawling around. Who knows? <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's that target. And, you know, here comes some uh, some more sinister stuff to amp up the evil again. Yep. So we've talked a little bit about sort of the breakdown of that that third chapter, a lot of the, the talk about geography. But then we get the, sort of the point of view that King's writing from. So those first two chapters are really focused on Ben and Susie. Um, we have a lot of Ben's interior monologue is even when he's driving into town, like we get his direct thoughts as he's sort of spacing out while he's driving and later on as he thinks about why he, he's come to town. But then we get into that third section and we get a lot of individual characters, pieces and, and interior thoughts. And it gives us a good sense of these characters in a way that without that interior monologue, we might not have understood their characters to the extent they would, because we would have been left to rely on stereotypes right. as a reader, because it's very easy for me to say, oh, this is a a sheriff in a backwater hick town. I'm going to assume that he's this type of guy, when in fact, Sheriff Parkins Gillespie is not that type of sheriff. He may seem slow, but he's very observant. He knows what's going on, mm -hmm. and he's got his eyes on everything that's going around town. And that's not necessarily what you might think of if you weren't given that interior monologue from him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I was first sort of taken aback by how much King varies the point of view. It almost felt like, is King being sloppy here? Is this his second novel and he didn't kind of catch these mistakes? But no, he's being quite deliberate here. We are getting very quick snapshots of new character, new character, new character. And if we don't get to know what they're thinking, so if we don't get their point of view, then we don't really know anything about them. If all we had was Ben Mears' point of view on all this, like you said, the sheriff would just be a Barney Fife type, and yep. we would never get Mabel Wirtz. We would never get any of that information. So King's violating some writing rules by switching pov so dramatically but it's for a purpose and he even switches to address us directly as the author at one point there's a line in the middle of a whole bunch of other stuff where he just says in small towns scandal is always simmering on the back burner like your aunt cindy's baked beans not so-and-so's baked beans it's my aunt cindy so it's like okay king just the, the author, the narrator just spoke to me in this yes. moment. That was like, what? Where, how did I change the point of views there? And uh, But it works. I even like that line a lot. So it's just, uh, I think that even at this stage, this is King's second published novel. He's already flexing some pretty strong muscles. Mm. He knows what the rules are. He's breaking them on purpose to good effect here. Yes. You mentioned Sheriff Parkins Gillespie. Like, I also thought that he would be the type of person that Roland would be very wary of, but very much respect. Mm. Because of that fact that he seems soft, but he isn't. And he seems slow, but he's keenly observant. And like Roland would see that in a minute. He would size him up immediately and say, like, yeah, that guy looks like he's he's like overweight and middle-aged, but no, it's all muscle. And yeah. his vision is perfect and, and he's got good reflexes. He just doesn't move. Right. You know, there's a difference. And I think all of that comes through because we get Gillespie's point of view. Yeah. King's got a lot of heavy lifting to do here because 
we're introduced to dozens of characters. Like we're not going to be able to spend this whole novel in Ben Mir's point of view. Mm -hmm. So he needs to introduce us quickly to a lot of people, introduce us to the town and I don't know, make us at least care a little bit about some of these people, because even if we only see them for a page and a half, we have to have some sort of buy-in or investment on them. Right. So you got the electrician who wants to make good and the milkman who's a widower and the, 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 maintenance man who's just trying to do his job so he's got a lot of work to do here but i think he does a good job of getting us getting us right in the thick of the action and making it interesting because it could have been a slog to get through what was a fairly long chapter and you know just like who are all these characters why should i care but i think he does enough to get us in that mindset of like okay this is important i i I, there's a lot of names here and a lot of people but i'm guessing it's going to pay off at some point yeah it's like uh exposition via journal entry or something like journal position or something. Yeah. Cause it, it actually, I think works better than some of the Ben Mir stuff, which again is, is seems overly melodramatic. Like he's driving down, but Oh, let me think these thoughts about my dead wife. Uh, Oh, I was almost in an accident or yeah, I'm, I'm on this date with this beautiful girl and I'm talking, but then I zone out for a little bit as I remember the time that I was in the haunted house. It's like a Wayne's World uh, flashback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I think at one point she asks if he's still there, like, right? Like, because he's sort of like reminiscing about stuff. It's one thing when they're reminiscing and just sort of telling stories about like, oh, did you know so-and-so? Did you know so-and-so? But like when he like gets into this fog. Mm-hmm. So I, I think King does a really good job with this, the second part. I agree. All right. Well, we don't have a lot, but I think we do have some Dark Tower thinnies. Oh, yeah. We've got some Dark Tower thinnies. We'll always be able to find some, even if they are the thinnest of thinnies. Yes. You want to start, Jay? Sure. So I think that uh, chapter three that we've been talking about with this, you know, hour by hour breakdown, King missed a really big opportunity to stop at part 19. He was, you know, he was going strong and then he went right up to 20. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you know, this was long before he had decided that 19 was a special number, but still, it would have been really great if that had just been like 19 parts. There you that's go. That's the end. So, I know that's like basically something that didn't happen, I'm calling a thinny, but like I said, thinnest of thinnies. Mine was at the very first page of this section. Ben is talking about how to get to Salem's Lot and how the roads have changed and the route numbers have changed. And the narrator says, time had marched on, which is just so close to uh, the world has moved on. And just a couple a couple of words here and there, and, and we'd have that. Yeah. It's maybe like something that evolved into the world moved on. Yes, exactly. Right. And of course... King had written The Gunslinger at that point. Yep. That phrase was already in existence floating around in there, so who knows if it's stuck around in his head here. And not that it's an original statement, time marches on all the time, but mm-hmm. eh. like we said, these thinnies are thin. We also learned that Hubert Marston, the original owner of the Marston house, had dollar bills taped inside pages of the Saturday Evening Post, just like Liz Garfield did in Low Men in Yellow Coats. And I'm sure that that's just something that people have done, but I feel like seeing it again here, 
this is something that King must have experienced himself. You know, maybe a, a parent or an older relative did this, or even he did it at some point. Like, the safest place to keep my cash is by hiding it in thick magazines or newspapers in this case. Right. This is sort of a connection back to Lomen, and uh, which of course is connected to Dark Tower. So by the transitive property, this is a thinny. It is. And then the uh, the last Dark Tower thinny that I found in this section of Salem's Lot uh, was a line. When they went different ways, they both marveled over the easy, natural, coincidental impingement of their lives. And I think Roland might hear this and call it Ka. Definitely Ka. Even just in the moment, seeing, you know, feeling that their lives have changed direction just because they happened to meet that day in, in the park. There is no coincidental impingement in Roland's world. Nope. And as we've determined, Roland's world's connected to all the others, so there must not be in ours either. That's right. So again, thin thinnies, but they're sort of there. Yeah. The last thinny that I had was when the sacrifice of Ralphie Glick happens, the person presenting his body to whatever's there. And again, it must have been interesting reading this book when you had no idea what was it about. Is it going to be about vampires? What's going on here? But, you know, we, we sort of have an idea. He makes mention that the person doing the sacrifice, that he's giving it up to the Lord of the Flies, oh. which is used in the original terminology of one of Satan's minions, right? Like a, a demon of some sort, the Lord of the Flies. Again, that book had played a, through the transitive property importance in Low Men in Yellow Coats. So mm-hmm. again, a thin thinny. So is it time for fun stuff, Sean? I'm ready for it. Lay it on me. There was a lot of fun stuff in this beginning, the, the real beginning of this book. This is a quote that I wrote down like 20 some odd years ago when I first read the book. I liked it so much. So here it is again. Fate, not blind at all, was equipped with sentient 2020 vision and intent on grinding helpless mortals between the great millstones of the universe to make some unknown bread. That's getting close to Ka as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's totally Ka. I used to keep a little spiral notebook of quotes from books as I was reading, and this was in there. And when I was rereading the book for the podcast, and I read the, oh, yeah, I remember this line. Got to talk about it on the show. So we talked last week on the first episode about how King changed the name of this novel a couple of times mm-hmm. due to just second coming. He didn't want it to sound like a sex manual and Jerusalem's lot sounded too religious. So then he ended up with Salem's lot. And here we get the backstory of why the town itself is called Jerusalem's lot. Mm-hmm. And it's not really what we thought it was going to be. No. It turns out that w- one of the Founders of the town had a pig that went somewhat feral and would roam around the outskirts and he would tell the kids, don't go out there because that's Jerusalem's lot, Jerusalem being the name of the pig. So, uh huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jerusalem's lot and the town Salem's lot and all this stuff, it, it's, it's named after a pig. I, I love that. Yeah. And, and King puts a nice bow on it by saying, Perhaps in America, even a pig can aspire to immortality, which is just a nice little, yep, 
And unfortunately, that is often too, too true in America. Uh-huh. Hey, could this also be sort of a Dark Tower thinny? Because, like, the Dixie Pig is an important oh, thing in the Dark that's... Tower. And maybe the Dixie Pig's first name is Jerusalem. I'll allow it. Yeah, that's pretty thin. It is headcanon now. Yep. There are a couple other lines that I liked a lot. One is, his face was set in the long lines of a man who was traveling a hated country he could not completely leave. Mm. I like the hated country. And then the other line that I liked a lot was, the window was filled with the last bright, foolishly golden light of summer. A light that laughed at the cold, rattling autumn and the colder winter that would follow it. Yeah, that's a good one too. King's just spinning gold in this book, man. So I mentioned before about the party lines and how easy it is to forget how different things were in the world way back when. And so in the meet cute that happens between Ben and Susie, she just happens to be sitting in the park reading a book and it's his book and mm-hmm. she recognizes his face and wants to get him to autograph. And he's like, hey, isn't this a, a library book? What are you going to do? And she's like, well, I'll just keep it. And he's like, well, how are you going to replace it? And she says that she'd need to use a book finder out of New York City to figure out how to get it. And I can only imagine like how that would happen. Like Nowadays, I can interlibrary loan at something. I can go on the internet and get something from eBay or half.com. And I can only imagine what was she going to do? Like write a letter to a service in New York City. They're going to write a letter back saying we can get a copy for you and it's going to cost this much. And then she'd have to send a mail order check to them. And then they could send the book to her. It just seemed like it just sort of tired me out just even thinking about it. Yet another industry destroyed by the cold, heartless internet. All those book finders out there. What are they doing today? I don't know. Will no one think of the book finders? (laughs) After they get that out of the way, Ben decides to write his autograph and in the book for her. And he writes, to the prettiest girl in the park. And I was thinking of Flight of the Concords as they have that song about the most beautiful girl in the room. Yeah, looking around the room, I can tell that you are the most beautiful girl in the room. Not maybe the best compliment to give somebody. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Salem's Lot, part one, chapters four through seven. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Consummate professionals.